Thank you, guys. Take uh, your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9. Use the pew Bible there in front of you if you don't have a copy. We're in a narrative section here. Um, well, all of First and Second Samuel are narrative, if you will. Um, but chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Second Samuel are the pinnacle, okay? They're the high point of David's reign as king of a united Israel. And as, as we get this picture, it's a summary, if you will. Eight and ten are kind of summary chapters. Chapter nine gives us a specific event in the life of David, in the life of uh, Saul's family. Um, and in these chapters, what we see is God fulfilling his promise to David that he has made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see David's response to that promise. Okay, so that's kind of sets the stage there. Let's just read. Uh, follow along with me as I read 2 Samuel chapter 9. All right. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And David said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray together. Father, we've sung about a good and gracious king. And now, uh, Lord, we've read about one. And we uh, pray 
Lord, that the word uh, that we read and hear will, um, Father, just impact our lives. Uh, Lord, so plow your way into our distracted, hard, easily uh, turned aside hearts, Lord. And um, just show us, Lord, how gracious and good you are. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So I've shared with you before, I, I learn best not by reading, not by even looking at pictures. I, I learn best in a different way. So let me, let's just think about this for a second. How do you define beauty? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines beauty this way. The quality or group of qualities in a person or thing that gives pleasure to the senses or to the mind. That's the definition. So how do you, what does a picture of beauty look like? Well, I could, I could show you pictures of beauty, but there's still something lacking in that, okay? It's, it's like we're seeing it one-dimensionally, not three-dimensionally. How, what about, what about grace? How do you define grace? This is a good one if you read it in the dictionary. A charming or attractive trait, like he's, she or he is a, a person of grace. The ease or suppleness of beauty. I hear that lots of times when we watch gymnastics or figure skating when the Olympic rolls around. Oh, they, they skate with such grace. That means they don't fall on their rear end all the time. They, they look good doing it. It's a prayer before a meal. That's grace. And then Webster, like down fourth or fifth in the list, says it's unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. How do you picture grace? The giving of an undeserved gift, you know, something that can't be repaid for. I got one more for you. What about kindness? How do you define kind or kindness? Well, the dictionary says it's quality of being kind, being friendly, being generous, being considerate, or it's, it's a kind deed, okay? What does a picture of kindness look like? Oh, I knew you'd do that, Brenda. Oh, what, what is, what does a picture of kindness look like? So we can look at a definition in the dictionary. We can look at a picture that stirs in us some response that might bring from our eyes through our brain this understanding of what that might look like. I think a better way to understand what beauty and grace and kindness look like are to actually walk into a room and see it being done. See it being played out before our eyes like we're sitting we're sitting in a, you know, with a, with a stage and, and, the, and the play itself or whatever it is we're watching and participating in is demonstrating to us what beauty and grace and kindness look like. Well, that's what we have in this passage. That's what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Okay? Now, we have, we've talked about David being a man after God's own heart. And remember, this is important. David did not have a heart that impressed God. That's not what that means. It means that God did a work in David's heart 
so that David's heart then begin to reflect God's heart. Same thing he does in the hearts of anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't do that because we've earned it, deserve it, or he looks and says, you know, I could use that person. I need someone. No, God doesn't need anything or anybody. But by his grace, he changes our hearts. Ezekiel says, gives us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone and begins to shape that heart. So in 2 Samuel 9, we get to witness grace and kindness, and I believe beautiful grace and kindness, portrayed in front of us. It's actually acted out in this scene. It's modeled for us. But again, it is not the world's definition of grace. It's not the world's definition of kindness. It's a definition of grace and kindness that are anchored in the very character of God. And what we see in second chapter in Second Samuel chapter 9 is, and make no mistake about it, it's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture when, when David is at his best, he is a poor reflection, but he's better than most, a reflection of his perfect son, Jesus, who is to come. And we see David at his best in Second Samuel chapter 9, as he brings in this crippled man named Mephibosheth, and he lavishes on him this extraordinary kindness. We see the best of David, and we see a foreshadowing of Jesus. As David brings this man who by all rights and culturally is his enemy and adopts him as his son and gives him a place at his table, not just for a meal at Thanksgiving, but from now on, this is where Mephibosheth is. He's brought in as a prince of the king. So when we see David at his best, we see Jesus and we see Jesus all over Second Samuel Chapter 9. So let's just look at it. I've got your outline there in your sermon notes. Just take a look at that. The king's unexpected pursuit. Okay. Then Mephibosheth's hopeless plight. This is brought to you by the letter P. Okay. That's, those are the, the preacher's words today. Okay. All right. David's pursuit. Mephibosheth's hopeless plight. The king's extraordinary, extravagant promise. And then Mephibosheth's privilege. Look at these first few verses. David asked this question, okay? Now, we aren't told the setting here, but, and it's completely unexpected, but I don't think it's unexplainable. I think if we understand what's going on in God's heart and in David's heart, what we see happening here really is just, wow, I would expect that. But not from the context and not from the culture, okay? So on this day... God has promised David what? I will I'll give you a great name, and he's done that. I will give you a place, and he's done that for Israel. He has Jerusalem as his capital. I will give you peace from all of your enemies. Now, those ugly heads will rise again, but for now, David is at peace. And as David contemplates his setting... As he's there in his palace in some regard, I think what's going on here right now is a conversation in David's brain. I don't know that he necessarily speaks this out loud. I think it's something that maybe is just playing in his mind over and over and over. He's just feeling a little nostalgic. He's thinking about all that God has done for him. He's reflecting on how faithful God has been, and he's remembering just how God, how far God has brought him. He, that's what he says in, in, in chapter 7. And as he thinks about that, I believe one man, one name, one face continues to pop up in his brain. 
And it's his best friend. It's Jonathan. It's his best friend that he lost that died on the field of battle with his dad. That happens to us, right? We sit around and we think and we, you know, we, those memories flood our hearts and flood our minds. And before long, there's faces in those memories. And I think that's probably what happened here with David. And those memories that come flooding into his mind around Jonathan are sweet. They are good. Yeah, it's bittersweet in that Jonathan's not there anymore. But he thinks about the way they, they fought side by side, the promises that they made to each other, the fellowship that they shared, the way that Jonathan went out of his way and sacrificed for David in so many different ways. And Jonathan comes to David's mind and David just thinks, you know what, I made him a promise. And now some say it could be as much as 15 or 20 years later. David thinks about that man, and he thinks about that promise. And so he says, is is there someone I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then it goes a little further. So this is uttered out loud in some way in verse 2 that they they hear. And and so there is a servant that someone's aware of named Ziba who used to work for Saul, used to be in Saul's household, and now... They bring him to the king, and Ziba asks him a question. Is there someone I can show kindness to? But what's the difference this time in that second request, that second question? First time it was kindness for Jonathan's sake, and now is there someone I can show the kindness of God to him? Now, David had made a promise to to Jonathan, all right? You don't have to flip back there if you want to, that's fine. In 1 Samuel chapter 24... It's an amazing scene in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And and what's interesting about that, excuse me, chapter 20. In 1 Samuel 20, the setting is what? It's a meal. It's at the king's table. And David has a place at Saul's table. But he and Jonathan come up with this method, this scheme, to to see what's going on in Saul's heart. And David says, I'm not going to show up at my place at the table. I want you to judge your father's response. See how, see how Saul responds to me not being there. Well, it does not go well. And David and Jonathan have this plan for them to meet up. And they meet. And Jonathan just says, my father didn't respond well. It was pretty ugly in the way that he responded. And here's where I'm just going to pick up the reading of it in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Jonathan says, should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David and Jonathan cut a covenant. I believe they did exactly what happened between God and Abraham. Animals were killed, separated in half, and the two parties of the covenant walked between those halves saying, may the same thing happen to me as happens to these animals if I don't fulfill this promise to you. David made a promise to Jonathan. Four chapters later, he makes the same promise to Jonathan's dad, Saul. 
When Saul says, I recognize you're going to be the king. When you become king, don't wipe out my family. Which was expected, which was expedient, which was a good strategy, and which was culturally absolutely acceptable. Revenge ruled the day in David's day. Ooh, sounds like today in a lot of ways. But David says, I have a promise to fulfill. But it's not just for Jonathan's sake. Notice, the kindness of God. That's important, church, for us to recognize. Because David's heart reflects God's heart. And what is the first thing that comes to mind lots of times when we think about God? Oh, we think kindness, we think grace, we think beauty maybe. The culture is going to think a lot of different things in that regard. My mind went immediately back to God's gracious self-revelation when Moses wanted to know who God was. When, when he wanted to, to be able to express who God was. And I'll just read this from Exodus chapter 34. The Lord descended to the cloud and stood with him there, stood with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God brought Moses up on the mountain, hid him in the cleft of the rock, and walked by him, stating his name, declaring his name. And what was the name that God stated? What was the name that he revealed to Moses? The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgression and sin. Two verses, God uses the same name, the same characteristic. My name is steadfast love. Hesed in the Hebrew language, and we've talked about it a lot. It's, it's, it's not kind of good. It's not kind as opposed to mean. It's not better as opposed to bad and whatever else our culture would want to use to define what kind is. It's the character of God. It is the covenant love of God. It is the one characteristic of God that he repeats twice. And that's God's heart. That is who God is. And because God is steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, because he is that, he does that. Right? We get that. Everything that God is is a reflection of his character. And so this is who God is, and that is how God responds, how God acts, how God works. How do we define that Hesed love? I went back through my sermon notes. Remember, we've been getting ready to get to David for two years. You may not remember that. We had the goal of working through the life of David two years ago when I said we've got to do Ruth first. So we went through the book of Ruth. And saw what it was to have a kinsman redeemer who takes on responsibility to carry out covenant love. And then we went into the ugly book of Judges. And we didn't spend a long time there because I just can't take too much of Judges. But we were working our way slowly, slowly getting to the life of David. And we saw this covenant love. We saw this hesed love. Alistair Begg defines this as a love that commits itself to another by making the promise a matter of solemn historical record. So Begg says that this covenant love is something that is put on the record. 
that everybody can go back and see what it is. All right. I read this week a quote by Sally Lloyd-Jones. She wrote a little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. She translated this Hesed love, this covenant love for children in a way that a lot of us adults like. She says, it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, forever love. That's a good way to define it. Eugene Peterson says, Hesed love is loyal love, is a way of life that works for the good of another, brings out the best in another, sees behind and beneath whatever society designates that person to be, whether it's disabled or inconvenient or a rival or worthless or dysfunctional, and acts to affirm that God-given identity. John Piper says that God's covenant love, his Hesed love, is the most practical truth any Christian can know. It says that God is all-powerful, all-wise, always for you. All-powerful, all-wise, always for you. That's the covenant love that God has shown to David. And you know what David wants to do? He just wants to pay it forward. God, you've been gracious to me. Is there someone I can be gracious to? But he has an intentionality behind it that's specific. And so, this kindness that God has shown to God, excuse me, that God has shown to David, he, he now wants to show. It's the kindness that took David from a pasture covered with sheep mess and smell and clothed him in the garb of a king and put him on the throne. You've come a long way, David. And God has been gracious to get you there. And he has every reason from a cultural standpoint to think back on that 10 or 15 years ago that he made this promise to Jonathan. And then think back that that 10 or 15 years was miserable for the most part because of Jonathan's dad. He made my life miserable. He sought to kill me. He sought to exile me. He sought to cheat me through My wife, his daughter. David's mind could have gone back to all of that wrong done him by Saul and said, Is there someone left in the house of Saul? Who by rights could make a claim to my throne? Because if David was like the other kings and the culture in which he lived, he would have put that out in a second and put him down. David can defeat his enemies, right? We've seen him do that. He can be tough. He had every right, culturally speaking, to ask about an heir, to ask about, is there someone left? But his motivation is to demonstrate the very kindness of God, the covenant love of God. I went back and looked at my sermon from 1 Samuel chapter 20 when David made this covenant with Jonathan. And I had this quote in my notes, covenant conquers culture. And it tramples on customary human standards. So yes, David, there is someone. And yes, David, in the cultural setting of your day and the expectation of your day, you'd have every right to go out and protect yourself, take revenge, and be sure that your position is secure. But guess what, David? Because you have God's heart, that's up to God now. And God is being faithful to show that. 
So it's an unexpected pursuit. Look at who is the recipient of this unexpected pursuit. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said, where is he? I'm in verse 4. He's in the house of Makar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. So King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Listen, just a little hermeneutical point here. When you see something repeated twice in two sentences, take note of it. If the Bible gives us a place and names it twice, we need to pay attention to that. Because it's not always that way in these narrative sections. What's the big deal about Lodabar, and why would it be important that the narrator gives us this information twice? Well, what we're told so far in this is something about Mephibosheth's family. He is the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. He is the grandson of Saul. The man, by the way, that David did everything he could to protect his status and his honor. David never raised his hand against Saul. God put him down. And so his family, Mephibosheth's family, is in some sense a lineage that in some ways he might take some pride in. But we're going to see that that's not the case at all. All right, so we recognize his family. The next thing that the author tells us before we ever understand anything about his name is what? He's a crippled. His physical handicap. The fact that that the author, Ziba the servant, tells us that before we even know anything about him as far as his name or any of that, he says he's disfigured. He's handicapped. Based on Old Testament law, he couldn't even go in the place of worship. And that's the characteristic that we hear about Mephibosheth. But what's implied in this is not just his family or his physical disability. What's implied in this and what we should see in this is Mephibosheth's fear. His fear. He's in Lodabar because Lodabar is on the backside of nowhere. The word actually means no pasture. And scholars really don't know exactly where it was or what it was, except that it is a nowhere place. In the middle of nowhere, with no resources, there's no pasture there. Why would anybody want to be there? Well, I don't think anybody would necessarily want to be there. I believe Mephibosheth is there because he knows that one day there may come a knock at the door. And he knows that one day when that knock comes, that it may well be representatives of King David. And he knows what happens to the grandson of the one who used to be king when the father is dead and he's next in line. I believe Mephibosheth lived in constant fear that that knock on the door would one day come because he knew what would happen when that knock on the door came. So here he is, a crippled man coming from a fallen dynasty, living in a God-forsaken place, Fearing the one day that has finally come. So, you Mephibosheth? Yes. King David wants to see you. He has no choice. (laughs) These men are there to get him and bring him to the king. 
And it picks up in verse 5 that King David sent and brought him from this God-forsaken place on the backside of nowhere and brought him to Jerusalem, brought him to the king's palace. Verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came up to David, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And here we see not just his hopeless plight, but this extraordinary promise, this extraordinary demonstration of kindness and Hesed covenant love. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. <laughs> this is crazy. This is crazy. And, and Mephibosheth recognizes it as crazy. Like, what in the world is kind of my paraphrase there, verse 8. He paid homage. How, what are you doing and why me? It's an amazing thing that unfolds here before us. Now, I believe, I, I looked up, I thought about trying to find a painting of this. There's classical paintings of David and Mephibosheth, and I didn't like a single one of them. And here's why I didn't like them. Because those paintings showed King David seated on his throne in all his royalty and Mephibosheth down there on the floor in front of him. And I don't believe for one second that that's what happened. Look at it. The first thing that Mephibosheth hears after David has actually taken the initiative to come and get him. By the way, that's what covenant faithfulness does, right? It takes the initiative, takes that first step. So David did that. And the first thing that Mephibosheth hears is not, You cripple! You loser! I wonder how many times he'd heard that. First thing he hears is his name. His name. And I don't think David said it from the throne. I really don't. I think his love for Jonathan, David's, David's love for Jonathan, his heart just being filled with the reminders of that covenant faithfulness and fellowship that they share. I think, I think when Mephibosheth came in there and he, he, he fell on his face. What else could he do? I think he's expecting a sword. He falls on his face and I think David got up. And just hugged him. Said his name. And he said it with love. He said it with compassion. He said it with the depth of feeling that comes from God's heart. Mephibosheth, I recognize you are a person. You are not some nameless exile. You are not some crippled. You are not some person from the backside of nowhere that I feel some obligation to show you some kind of good deed. No. That's not what covenant love does. That's not what Hesed loves does. So the first thing that Mephibosheth hears after his name is the last thing that he expected to hear and the one thing that he needed to hear, which was what? 
The same thing that everywhere in the Bible, when someone sees a messenger from God or from an angel or whatever it is, it's do not fear. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all people. Do not fear, Mephibosheth. You don't need to be afraid. I love that. I wonder what the face of David looked like as he said that. H.B. Charles is a, is a great preacher, and he shares this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but I was reading this article. And he tells the story of Thomas Jefferson, our president. Thomas Jefferson, he says, was riding on horseback cross-country when he and his companions, he said, came to a swollen river. And there was a traveler, a wayfarer, if you will, on the side of the river, not on horseback, not able to get across the river. And as he stood there, he watched several in, in Thomas Jefferson's party pass on by and go into the river and go to the other side. But when President Jefferson approached, he hailed him. He kind of raised his hand and asked Thomas Jefferson to take him across to the other side of the river. And Thomas Jefferson did that. Once on the other side, the group asked this traveler why he selected the president. He didn't really know who he was. He said, why did you select him? And he says, I didn't know he was the president. All I know is that some of the faces that came had the answer no written on them. And on his face, I saw yes. I think that's what Mephibosheth saw in David. By the way, I was, I was struck by that. I, I know that's not what people see in my face all the time. They don't see yes. I was, I was convicted about that. I think all of us should be in some extent. The king's extravagant kindness. Notice what he says next. He said, as he called him in, don't fear, for I'm going to show you the kindness that you deserve, Ziba. No, wait, that's not what it says at all. I'm going to show you the kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. The king's kindness is not because we deserve it. The king's kindness and grace is not because we've earned it. It's because of someone else. And the grace that you're about to get, Mephibosheth, is because of someone else. It's not because of anything that you've done or could do. And that's the, that, and, and Mephibosheth, his response, I think is, I think he's saying amen in some ways to what David's last words are. We'll get there in 2 Samuel chapter 23, but I was reading forward. By the way, I dread next week with all get out. I'm just telling you, it's like a movie that you've seen a dozen times and you wish every time you watch it that the ending would be different. And I'm dumb enough to do that. I'll watch a movie and go, well, maybe something will be different this time. I feel that way about the next chapter in 2 Samuel 11. Okay? But I get it. I digress even as I progress. Okay? Here's the point. Later on in David's life, because I was reading all the way through to the end. David says this, these are his last words. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Mephibosheth, if he was there when David said that, would gay amen. Because when I see my King David, 
ruling in the fear of the Lord, extending the grace of the Lord and the kindness of the Lord, that dawned on me that day like morning light. That came on me like dew on a dry ground. That's what Mephibosheth experienced here. This extravagant kindness not only just calls him by name, not only recognizes his worth, not only gives him this tremendous blessing for the sake of his father Jonathan, but look at the provision. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. This is crazy extravagant. In one word, one word, Mephibosheth has gone from a fearful cripple nobody on the backside of nowhere to one of the kingdom's wealthiest men with his granddad's farm and all of the administrative farm staff he needs to run that business and the promise of provision as long as he lives. Yeah, you ought to just sit there in silence for a minute. God, that's crazy. No, it's not. It's amazing grace. And Mephibosheth would say, how sweet the sound. And that's, that's what we see here. And look at his response. What is your servant that you should have regard for a dead dog such as I? When he recognizes his undeserved privilege, look at the humility that comes from there. And I think, how different from how I respond sometimes. It's about time. If you knew who I was, this would have happened a long time ago. No. No. There's a humility here that recognizes grace for what it is. And I will go ahead and say that if you don't respond to the grace of God in Christ this way, you don't know what it is and have never tasted it. Because there's nothing in us that would lead us to respond to grace with anything else except, I'm a dead man walking. Why would you even regard me this way? So Mephibosheth shows this humble response. Have we heard that before? Yeah, we have. We have heard it before. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David said to Saul, Why are you, why are you trying to kill me? Why are you putting so much effort into trying to get rid of someone like me? He says, I'm a dead dog. Meaning, I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Why are you trying to do away with me, Saul? Well, here that echoes again in Mephibosheth's word. Why are you trying to... What are you, what are you doing for me with such extravagance and such grace? I, I'm nothing to you. I'm a dead dog, okay? These aren't dogs like we have in 2024 that ride in the driver's seat. That are in the shopping cart at every store you go into. That's not the dog we're talking about. These are mongrel pests. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm a dead dog. I think it's the same attitude even that we saw in David in, earlier in chapter 7. When he just says, Lord, who am I? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? It's the same humility. In the face of grace. And so Mephibosheth's humble response is just simply, who am I to receive this? And the king calls in Zeba. I'll talk more about Zeba later. I'm not exactly sure that Zeba's real excited about what's going on in front of him here. He's kind of had it made 
for these years, however many years they are. But he basically has just gotten a new boss. And the king says, all that belonged to your, you know, to your boss, Saul, I just gave to Mephibosheth and all of his house. And his name, Mephibosheth's son is mentioned later on down here in verse 12. I think just as a reminder that all of David's promises are going up to all of Mephibosheth's family. So, Ziba, you have a new boss. And all the land that you till and all that comes in is, is going to be provisioned. Now, he says here for Mephibosheth's, but I think implied here. Is when he says Mephibosheth's grand, excuse me, your master's grandson, I think he's talking about his household there because Mephibosheth really doesn't need to worry about whether or not the crops come in now. He doesn't have to worry now about whether or not it's been raining because he has a place. From now on, he has a place, a provision, a place. And I think what Mephibosheth has here that we don't necessarily see explicitly in the text, but I think is implied all the way through it, is he has peace now. He just has peace. There's no more fear. There's no more worry. There's no more wondering. He, he has peace. And, and what is transpiring here and what is unfolding here is just this beautiful picture. I think it's the most beautiful picture in the Old Testament of gospel grace. I really do. I don't know if there's another picture in the Old Testament like it. So Mephibosheth, it says, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You recognize what's going on here? Do you see what's happening? He's being brought in as a prince. He's being brought in as one of David's sons. Okay? And there's this amazing amount of peace. My mind went back to the last time David saw Jonathan. I believe it was the last time he had a conversation with Jonathan in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. They make this covenant with each other. And then Jonathan said this to David. Mephibosheth's father said this to his best friend. Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Go in peace. That was Jonathan's benediction to David. Because the Lord is in me and he's in you, David. And now Mephibosheth is experiencing that grace. It's an amazing picture to see here. Mephibosheth comes in and says, at your service. I think that's just a Hebrew expression for I'm yours, whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm here, I'm at your service. What does David say? Four times, what does David say? You're at my table. Mephibosheth says, I'm at your service. David says, you're at my table. Four times. It's an amazing thing to see, church. It's an amazing thing. Chuck Swindoll, I used to listen to him years and years ago. He I, And I pulled up a, an old sermon of his that I had heard back when I was in seminary. And I really remember when I heard this for the first time. Because Swindoll, just, he's an amazing preacher. Here's what he shared in his sermon from this passage. And I'm going to quote him. With a little imagination, you can picture a familiar scene in the king's residence. Gold and silver fixtures hold the flaming torches that line the palace walls. 
Lofty, hand-carved wooden ceilings crowned each spacious room, including the banquet hall where David and his family gather for their meals. In one chair sits tanned, handsome Absalom with his long, raven-black locks of hair. Next to him sits his beautiful sister, Tamar. Across from her sits the young and brilliant Solomon, probably holding one of his books. It's supper time, and the call has gone out to all the family to gather at the table. And as David the dad, the king, scans the room to make sure all the kids are present, he notices one is missing. It isn't long before everyone hears a sound that they've grown accustomed to. Clump, scrape, clump, scrape, echoes down the hallway. Clump, scrape, clump, scrape. Finally, the young man appears, and he slowly shuffles to his place. It's Mephibosheth. And he's now seated at the king's table along with the other members of the king's family. And once seated, the tablecloth of grace covers his crippled feet. All the way through the Bible, the mealtime is sacred. It's a, it's a sacred time, okay? It's a powerful symbol of something that I fear many in our culture and maybe some of you don't recognize. Okay? One of the things I'm thankful for in our family, mine and Susan's family, and I don't know that, I mean, yeah, there was intentionality behind it, but from the moment, I mean, this was the case when we first came here to Westwood some 33, 34 years ago. And I remember saying to people, if you call me during dinner, and we didn't have cell phones and none of this stuff, I said, if the phone rings during dinner time, I'm not answering it. If you're sick, I'll get there quick. If you're dead, it won't matter if I'm a few minutes late. But when you call at mealtime, we're not answering the phone. Because this is a sacred time in our family. I think it was a sacred time, intended to be a sacred time, throughout Scripture. That was the case in the Bible when Abraham ate with those heavenly messengers that brought to him the news that he was going to be a daddy. In Exodus chapter 24, when the elders of Israel meet with Moses on the mountaintop and meet God on the mountaintop, they ate a meal. In Isaiah chapter 26, he looks forward to the day when God's kingdom is consummated. And he says, on this mountain of the Lord of hosts, we will make a feast We make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. Isaiah looked forward to that day. In 2 Samuel 9, we see that day, and we see that day as we come to this table today. That's That's what this is. It's just a reminder that today, if you are in Christ and have entrusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior then you are just like those tax collectors and sinners that Jesus ate with that the religious people couldn't stand because there's a place for you at this table. And there's not a tablecloth here, but just just imagine there's a tablecloth of grace covering mine and yours crippled feet. And we don't deserve to be here. We cannot earn our place at this table. 
It is not because of who we are. It is because of someone else. We experience this extravagant grace for the sake of Jesus. Just like Mephibosheth got it for the sake of Jonathan. And we come to this table of grace recognizing that from His fullness we receive grace upon grace. We come to this table, church, recognizing that like Mephibosheth, who by all rights was an enemy, just like Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak, while we were still crippled, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, Paul writes, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed His love in that while we were, what? Still sinners. Still crippled. Christ died for us. And since we have been justified by His blood, now we are saved from the wrath of God. And while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, are we saved by His life? So this picture at the table is a picture of past reconciliation accomplished in Jesus and what God does for us because of it. It's also a picture of present day provision that God gives for us in Christ every day by His grace. And not because of us, but because of Jesus. And it's a picture of promise to come. When we will be seated at that banquet table with the king. And we will share in all of that gracious goodness. And our feet will still be covered up with a tablecloth of grace. Amen. It will be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the invitation that Mephibosheth got to come and eat at the king's table. We thank you for the proclamation of that, that all could hear. And we thank you that from then on, all the rest of the sons and daughters sat around and saw this reconciled, received, blessed sinner, cripple, make his way to the table. Father, help us, I pray, to see ourselves this day with clear eyes, crippled like Mephibosheth, enemies by rights, on the backside of nowhere except for your initiative to come and draw us into your grace and into goodness. God, fill us with amazement at how kind and good you are to us. Thank you, Lord, that you take the initiative to bring us to yourself just as we are. Without any plea. Thank you for that. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.